to the Iowa Idea Podcast. Join host Matt Arnold for in-depth conversations with artists, designers, entrepreneurs, and civic leaders as he explores how they approach their craft and represent a modern version of the Iowa Idea. This podcast tells the stories of Iowa natives, transplants, and friends who demonstrate the Iowa Idea in the 21st century. Accommodate the richness of different perspectives. In this episode, I'm joined by John Morley. John represents my third interview with Cork natives and reinforces the strong connections between Cork and Iowa. This Cork troika of Stephen McDonnell, Patty O'Reilly, and John are phenomenal conversations on collaboration and innovation. Since the late 90s, John has led organizations, large, small, and mid-size, urban and rural, public and private, to support self-sustaining innovation projects where the goals are both ambitious and ambiguous. The challenge is complex and the resources are always limited. John has spent 20 years working in Silicon Valley with global tech titans EMC, Symantec, Cisco, and Hitachi. Throughout his career, has blended competence in sales enablement, customer marketing and innovation, and yielding three times revenue growth year over year, new market categories in product creation, and massive acceleration in complex product process adoption. John and I dig into his journey from growing up in Cork, going to college for political science, and working for these large global companies to facilitating lean innovation efforts in Silicon Valley. John and I met through the strategic doing community, and ever since, we've just really enjoyed the opportunities to talk with each other. John and I mix it up on complexity and innovation with a focus on effectual innovation. Led by Patty O'Reilly, and you can hear more in episode 90, John, Fran Willis-White, Ed Morrison, and I have been exploring how we can innovate the ways we innovate and focus on what's the best we can do with what we have. As Fran says, there's an abundance of human potential. We just need to unlock these resources. John also shares the wisdom of Barry O'Reilly and Barry's work on unlearning and how to maximize clarity and competence. Combining that with Fran's insight where method follows intent, John discusses the power of intention. He shares his wisdom about where individuals' fear and a lack of intent, usually process-related, tend to have negative impacts on organizational culture and outcomes. It was an honor having John join me on the show. It's a personal joy when I have the opportunity to sit down and talk with him. We just happened to record this one. I hope you enjoy the episode. John Morley. Welcome to the Iowa Idea Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. Uh, it is also, you know, for guests, it is a little bit strange in that we're actually recording this conversation. We have some phenomenal conversations, but uh, I really do appreciate you taking the time to join me on the podcast. If you don't mind, for our guests, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Absolutely. Matt, It's uh, first off, it's great to chat with you on the Iowa Podcast. I have... Uh through uh, all sorts of serendipity become surrounded by awesome Iowans in the last few years. So, um, you know, uh, so it's, it's very cool to have this conversation with you. 
Um, we'll probably drop name drop a few of them too as we go through. So um, yeah, I'm John Morley. I'm originally from Cork in Ireland, which gets us chatting usually. Um, and uh, I came out here to California directly from Cork in 2005 with um, EMC, which was a big global Boston-based tech company that got, got consumed by Dell a few years back. And um, I've had a very roles, marketing roles, design roles, um, business roles. And usually I sort of describe myself as the person who gets chucked in to try and make sense of something um, when there's no resource. <laughs> go solve that. Go figure out how we get that done. So that's a... So how, uh, one of the things I dig into, because where, actually where we met was through the strategic doing community. And I know you have strong, strong uh, interest and passion around uh, complex collaboration, but what really got you interested in going into kind of the strategic doing space? Yeah, I, um, it was very practical, actually. Um, I was hired in by the chief innovation officer of a big, big company. And uh, at the time I was hired in, what we were really trying to do was to introduce, you see me look up, I'm literally reading the mission off a whiteboard behind me, was uh, the question was, how might we integrate data science into the very fabric of the company? Um, and uh, I had worked with the Iowan who was the chief innovation officer. Uh, and um, a couple of years ahead of, of him offering me the job, and I'd said to him, you know, I said, when it comes to adoption, I think you have a design challenge with data science. It's, 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 it's um, the, your consumers don't necessarily understand the full value of it because the language is different and I think design could help. And so he hired me in and, and the whole point was we're going to build a team of designers around me to help uh, on this mission. And, um, you know, corporate vagaries being as they are, I got in the door and well, that, that got chopped. So it was just me. And uh, immediately I thought, okay, well, where are there already designers here? Um, and so I found a team of designers, but they were UI designers. And that's a different mindset than what I was looking for. I was hoping they were UX and UX was somewhere else. Um, so plan B didn't work either. Um, and so I realized the way I was going to have to go forward was to find people with whom we shared purpose um, and hopefully share enough purpose that they might want to come on a bit of a learning journey with us and, and co-develop. And um, at the time, I was aware that Greg Sattel was writing the book Cascades, and Greg writes a lot about innovation. Um, and Cascades wasn't published yet, and it wasn't due to be published for about six months. So I, I found a way to contact him and called him, and I said, I need your help, and I need it, I need it now. <laughs> I said, like, what's in the book? And uh, he was both gracious and funny, and he said to me, well, I'm not telling you what's in the book yet, but let's have a chat. And we had this great chat. And then I, and in the middle of the chat, he said to me, look, he said, I'll tell you about somebody who's, who's creating uh, shared purpose movements for real. And it's Ed Morrison and, and the team at strategic doing, he said, go have a chat with them. And I, I went and got the book and it, I mean, Matt, you have the benefit of, and I know again, Iowa is a very strong strategic doing hub. Um, it's so practical and it's so actionable and it's so simple and yet sophisticated. Um, so sorry, long way, yeah, long no, way to that's, in, but that's oh. great. Thanks. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I'm glad our paths had crossed because of uh, strategic doing, but it was, uh, and, and you and I have chatted uh, outside of this as well, but uh, for me, the, the really strong parallels between design thinking and really human centered design and strategic doing 
And I still remember one of the one of the big things for me from strategic doing was also the notion of uh, really trying to get better at diagnosing complex adaptive problems, right? And and how do you how do you coordinate complex uh, collaborations, right? Because a lot I think a lot of the companies where you and I have worked too, they they did solve a problem in a very interesting way, but the world continued to become more complex around them. And they almost dig in on what made them great, which actually uh, tends to make the problem worse. Uh, yeah. I, I equate it sometimes to a grease fire, right? If you were trained, as, <laughs> you know, you were rewarded for putting out fires and the simple solution was get water quickly on the fire, speed that up, speed that up. And then you're confronted with a grease fire. You just throw water on it and it makes everything worse. Right. And, um, so I remember that being a, a really, really big breakthrough. Uh, but on the design front too, because we've talked about design thinking, where where did your interest in design come from? Um, so this I this is all part of a kind of a thread uh, for me. I um there's kind of a very logical action for this. I, I came out um and I was on what's called an L1 visa, which meant I was on in a management role in a company and my visa was uh, tied directly to that company. Um, so I had no ability to move between different companies if I wanted to. Um, the role I was in was very enjoyable, but it's after two or three years of it, I was like, oh, I'm ready for my next thing. And, and I was locked in. Um, so um, part of uh, the challenge I had is how could I actually find new things to do within the constraints I was operating within? So very specific program, very specific metrics, very specific deliverables. And um, the long story short, Matt, is we started to watch what customers were asking us about our portfolio and not doing. And I started to ask people around me, like, what is this? What could it be? What might it be? And um, we brought a bunch of people together. We created a prototype. We put it in front of customers. They gave us feedback. We tweaked it. And two years later, we actually, our work led to a joint venture between three companies. It spun out and uh, it got up to a run rate of about $2.5 billion revenue per year. And so I was sat back and I was like, what the heck was that? What did we do? And, and, and how did we get that seed out into the world? And um, as often happens, when the joint venture was formed, they took the engineers, they took the marketing people, they took the salespeople, but those of us who are actually at the origin of the conversation were sort of left behind. Um, without the language to explain what it is we had done. Right. And um, the, the physical manifestation of this was literally, I ran what was called an executive briefing center. So customers would come in every day and we had had this big sort of a goldfish bowl lab in the middle of it with all the equipment and that was where the company had started and that was all gone and i had this empty floor space and i said well what can we put in there and, and repeat the trick and this time it was data science and so we actually built the tech industry's first co-creative data science lab with customers in that same spot using the exact same techniques and this time around when it started to work i was like there's got to be something that describes what the heck it is we're doing and so i usually i'll wrap up on this usually yeah, tell yeah. the story of finding tim brown's change by design in a borders bookstore on a wet night in november of i think 2010 and sort of going oh my gosh this is it this is what we did um and that was my intro to design thank you backing up a little bit talk talk to me about um because you're 
your your academic background doesn't necessarily jump right into <laughs> technology or design, but talk to me a little bit about just uh, even your journey in in Cork and going to school. Yeah, I I always say that my my sister who is an artist um pulled me aside as I was sort of getting ready to leave high school and going to college and sort of said to me, I know I'm an artist and I'm doing what's called a commerce or a business degree. And she said, I'm sure it'll be useful, but it's not where my heart is. Be sure you do something that your heart is in. And, and so uh, for me, that at the time was political science because the European Union was really coming together and I thought it was fascinating. And, and so I jumped into that and loved it and, uh, and um, sort of came out the tail end of that and sort of realized, okay, how do I make this practical? And so I went back and I did a master's and this time I did a master's on trying to take everything I'd learned around political science and the workings of the European Union and, and applying it to what was going on in the country in Ireland at the time. And it was just before the Celtic Tiger. And so we were looking at things like, well, there's a lot of investment going into the country, but it seems to be all sort of siloed. Um, and so what would it take for all these people to just talk to each other? And, and, and now looking back, I would sort of say, oh, I have a kind of a systems perspective on what was going on. Right. Um, and I came out at the right time because I came out just in the first year or two of the Celtic Tiger and I got hired into a rural development job in County Waterford in the southeast of the country, um, which is spectacularly beautiful. And um, we joke about it as having the best roads in Ireland. If anybody's ever been on a potholy road in Ireland, go to Waterford, they're beautiful. Um, and uh, that was just a blast. Three years traveling around a rural area that was growing quickly um, and helping people become part of that economy. Um, but equally, I lived above a pub and a Chinese takeaway for three years. So I, it was not good for the old health. Um, and then I, I went on a project management course and met people from Dell. And um, this is a very long winded story. Oh, this is great. Uh, and um, I, I love as a Canadian writer called Douglas Copeland. And uh, I love Douglas Copeland. And he wrote this book called Microsurfs, which was really about a group of people who were catching the just the very beginnings of the Silicon Valley, which became the dot com boom in the mid 90s. Right. But they were they were on the sort of the Microsoft, the more infrastructure side of it just before the dot coms. And I just love the whole vibe of it. And then I, I met all these Dell folks uh, and I was like, "Ooh, can I come work for Dell? And I got a job with Dell. And then that led to a job at EMC in Cork. And that brought me here. So it's it's just been that continuation. Excellent. Uh, just check it in on on what in waterford does does everybody have some nice crystal there or <laughs> they do indeed and and i hate to blow the myth of this but i believe that the majority of the crystals actually made in dungarvan which is in the west of the county and not at the actual main plant <laughs> but um... i i just have to say, I, I i i'm glad my grandmother is no longer here so she she wouldn't have to hear that <laughs> But I, but but we had a joke earlier on, Matt, about you know Ireland for no matter how small it is, it's like you know we still a very parochial and very strong regional, you know, competitive competition. So you have to understand that's West Waterford, which is different than <laughs> the city. Right, right. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, and I think uh, just uh, you know we've talked about this in the past too, but even in in, in Cork, uh, if if I'm just saying Cork generally. Am I am I referring to the city or am I referring to the county? Oh yes. Well, you know. So first of all, you know, I have my little tea mug here, which says, that, you know, <laughs> if I read it one way, it says I'd rather be in Cork, but what it really says is I'd rather be in West Cork. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, it's uh, it's um, 
you know, we, I, I, you may have seen the t-shirts that around Ireland, we have t-shirts uh, that sort of say, um, you know, Irish by birth, but cork by, cork by the grace of God. Um, and uh, so there's a lot of that. And, and then within the county, it's like each, each person has their role in there. So the city is very definitely different from the rest of the county for sure. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Thank you. Uh, so one, one of the things on your, your journey and as you, you go through some of the different, different phases of your career, one of the things I love talking to people about is if they find themselves stuck, what are some of their techniques for getting unstuck? So if you don't mind, and you can also say, Matt, I'm a pro. I never get stuck. <laughs> Next question. But if, you, if you're ever feeling stuck uh, strategically, creatively, what are some of your techniques for getting unstuck? Uh, talk to people. Just see what they're thinking about. Um, I, you know, famously sort of pick up when, and, and again, I go back to... Um, when I was working in customer engagement roles, when we'd hit a kind of a lull or get stuck with it, um, you know, I'd find you can always go talk to the sales and marketing people, but I have a reasonable sense of what they're going to tell me that they want to do. Um, I would often actually go and talk to the people who are on the reception in the building, for instance, or, you know, people who were just coming in and doing different things and sort of saying, you know, if you were running this show right now, what would you do? Um, and it's amazing how much people in roles that are a little bit hidden are observing. Um, or, or even, which I also really appreciate, is the honesty of, I had this um, one person who co-managed uh, a program with me, a lady called Michelle, and I would, uh, Michelle would say to me, here's what you're terrible at doing. <laughs> and I'll say, oh my God, no. And, and then she'd sort of tell me, and then she'd say, and she said, I can't do any of what you do, but I think if we put those two things together. Maybe that would be different. So I learned a lot from her about um, always go seek who else is doing what to get unstuck. Right on, right on. Um, Want to just move a little bit to something that we've been talking about uh, a little bit lately, but the notion of effectual innovation. I know you and Potty have been uh, coordinating on this, but do you mind sharing for, for folks like what is effectual innovation? What do we mean by that and, and why it might be so important? Yeah, um, I love that question, obviously, because it's top of mind at the moment. I, I absolute credit to Potty and Matt, you're, you yourself for coming up with the, the, the framing of effectual innovation. Um, which which really is i believe is built on this concept of effectual reasoning um i'm a novice at that so i'm actually going to turn that back to you and you can explain that little piece but um but for me the way potty summed it up is saying like what's the most amazing thing we can do with what we already have and that just appeals so much to me because i i have been calling that bootstrapping um and uh i, I began to realize a number of years back that um we were getting things done and then I would go back to management and say, but we got it all done and, and I need more headcount. I need more resource. And I could, you know, I was getting frustrated because we never got the headcount and never got the resource. And of course, sort of the, the more I think back on that, of course they didn't give us more headcount resource because we were continuously creating with what we had. Um, so talk, you know, talk about being naive. Uh, and yet, and yet now I see that that has given me this tremendous faith that you asked me the question about getting unstuck. Yeah. Uh, 
we have people working with us and resources available to us, and we're only tapping into this little bit of what they're capable of. And so if you sit down with somebody and say, what gets you up in the morning? What would you love to be doing in a few years time? And how can we put that in place with what we're doing right now? Um, and, and, and then give them that agency. And amazing things happen. And, and what I looked back on is that, and I love, again, back to you on this, Matt, as well, what you and Potty are doing, I would say, sort of more academically around it, is framing that up very nicely in this concept of effectual innovation. But here's the thing. We have a world of stories we can tell to validate it. I think that's really, really compelling right now, is that ability to be able to say, um, we're in a complex, fast-moving, adaptive world um, and I would say, and I'm probably saying this a little bit loosely, but uh, actually we don't have to change a whole lot to deal with it. What we do have to change is our mindset. And, and Fran Willis-White, our friend, talks about abundance. There is abundance yeah. in the people and things we already have. Let's just go unlock it. I know. Yeah, I love that because I know, for, you know, for me personally, when I, when I founded uh, Spark, you know, the idea for me, Spark was the notion of a catalyst right uh, but it it's it's to set off the 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 reaction with the things that are already there that's and that's one of the things that i've, I've found really powerful about you know my conversations with you and, and with potty getting introduced to effectual innovation is like you said i loved your frame uh, like what's the best thing we can do with with what we have um rather than oh we need all of these other things which usually translate to innovation theater in large organizations. Uh, and it, the, the explanation that Potty used one time that really drove it home for me, and maybe it's because I have a bit of a sweet tooth, I don't know, but he talked <laughs> about birthday cakes, right? And he goes, that you might dream about what's the best cake one could make? And, you know, how would it be served and all of the ingredients and then you go into the kitchen and you're confronted with the reality that you don't have all of that equipment. You don't have all of those. But what if you, what if you looked at it the other way around is with what I have, what's the best cake that I could make, right? And I, I love that because you asked, we talked a little bit earlier about strategic doing. Yeah. The whole essence of strategic doing, right, is what do we already have that we can bring to light in new ways? And, and one thought that, that that comes to my mind around that is that my wife's amazing at this she'll open up the fridge and i'll go it's empty and she'll like produce something delicious um it, it does have to it's like creativity um we've a tendency to think that these things are just like out there in the ether and some bright amazing person knows how to go do it no we, we have to be structured in our approach to these things they're just as disciplined and just as structured as the tightest process you can think of um but they're just a reframing of our situation so I love that analogy of the birthday cake yeah. um, because it takes skill to build a good birthday cake. Have yeah. you have you ever seen the show Chopped? I have, yes. Yeah, it, you have been Chopped. <laughs> and I I love because like, I love the setup there that right you they open the baskets and there's these just like really weird things that they have to base a meal on. And uh, what I love is is the both the creativity and then also the the mastery of skill like just to me the notion of like general principles too right mm -hmm. what's going to guide me okay these things evoke this what can i do with it and and sometimes it not the chopped portion of the competition but that that element within organizations here's what we have or like you said with strategic doing is you know, 
how might we collaborate in a way that really unlocks what we have? And that's why I, uh, I loved what you, I loved being able to chat with Fran and what you say is, is this notion of unlocking these resources, right? It's not that they, they have to be discovered, but it's more, how can we unleash these and direct these and direct that energy in, in a way that is beneficial both for that individual, they get to show off their skills, right? And and for the group or the team is here's something we need. So I I just want to thank you for that that framing. Okay. And if you don't mind extending on that. Yeah, that so I want to go back to the unstuck bit to do yeah. this. Um there is a, a guy called Barry O'Reilly who has written a lot about innovation and and lean and he's written this great book called Unlearn. And I have the happy coincidence of knowing Barry and uh, being around sort of before and, and after he published it. And one thing that comes to mind is in, in that talk about the, the power of unlearning is he has in the middle of the book uh, a little two by two. And uh, the, the Y axis is clarity and the X axis is competence. And if you are clear on what you would like to do, but not necessarily competent at doing it, there is an opportunity for coaching. Um, if you are com competent at various things, but not entirely sure about where you want to take it, that can cause confusion. Right. Um, now, if you are very clear and very competent, then you have total capability. Um, and then, of course, the one I left out is, is if you're neither clear nor competent, you'll go for command and control. And what I've found looking back is um, we have a concept of this like binary. It's either this or it's this. Uh, another way I kind of look at it, and I, I'm thinking of one person I worked for at one stage who used to say, here's what I want, here's when I want it, and here's how I want it done. Well, you've just taken away anything I can bring to this situation. I, I no good. And anything that I would do is me, all those past experiences I have, if you, if they don't fit in your paradigm, then I'm useless. And that, that, that kept going on. Um, I actually think, in fact, I can share with you that in the period of time we were in that company, we grew its revenue three X in just over a year. Um, but we didn't last. I mean, we were, we walked away from it and they were happy to see us go. And that was just because we got into that command and control lock the whole time. Uh, and so I'm kind of a roundabout way of, of answering the question, Matt, but I'm very conscious of those things is how clear are we? And it's okay if we're not, let's go get some clarity. And how competent are we? And again, it's okay if we're not, let's go innovate and practice and get better at it. Um, yeah. And thank, and uh, just out of curiosity, uh, where's Barry from? <laughs> <laughs> He's another, I'm, I do surround myself with more than just Irish people, but yes, Barry is a dub. From Dublin, <laughs> based right, in San you, Francisco, but but you still talk you, you talk to them. It's it's all right for Cork and Dublin folks. Or oh yeah, you, that's all did right. Did you have I, to leave the country to go talk to each other? Uh, we did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like I like that uh, matrix quite a bit, and I think part of it is a little bit of a social science nerd in me. Always loves like kind of two by two matrices to to look at things and sort things out. Uh, fact sometimes i'd use that as a design tech when we were when when we're is like let's just make up some two by twos what does it look like uh in these areas just to free up some thinking but that uh that command and control as soon as you said that 
uh, unfortunately, there are a couple past managers that came right to mind as soon as you you said that, where there wasn't a lot of competence and there wasn't a lot of clarity. And I think um, one of the great things we talked about, mentioned Fran Willis-White, and Fran's obviously a very competent, I call her a change guru. Um, and the, uh, the reason I don't say expert is because she's just a continuous learner. So she'll always tell you she's still learning. Um, what Fran really opened my eyes up to um, was that you can design the most incredible thing, but you still have to manage the dynamics of change to have it adopted. Yep. And, and that was such an eye-opener for me. I mean, it's obvious, but I hadn't thought about how obvious it is. So I think what, what, what I do now if I see people who are very much command and control is um, I want to go have a conversation with them and see, can I eke out, where's the fear coming from? You know. Yeah, and uh, any themes that you see there that you find out or is it, is it common elements of, uh, you know, because fear is kind of a primary emotion, right? But are there... Are there common threads that you see? Is it because when I and maybe I'll just throw out my my mental model and you can kick it around a little bit. Hmm. And see, but some I think is 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 ego kind of like old school is that I I can't appear to be vulnerable and I can't appear like I don't know. Uh, and then that has some some nasty unintended consequences with people around. Um, and then. Uh, yeah, I think I guess maybe that's it for me. Is is the fear is is really just uh, ego and standing in a hierarchy. Uh, what what might this do if I'm seen to not know or if I'm seen to uh, be weak? I guess because there's it's usually if, <laughs> the extreme is it, it feels like bullies that I've met in my life. Right? Is that they're actually not really that good? So the way they compensate is try to be overly aggro with everybody else. Yeah, that I can have, <laughs> I can think of a lot of situations yeah. that that reminds me of. Um, I I'm going to lean back on what I've learned from Fran here. Um, and actually, just a thought. I I always say I'm, I'm not I'm not an originator of themes or ideas. I I just love smushing them together and seeing what comes out of that. Um, but Fran, actually, how Fran and I got to know each other was we were part of a catalyst uh, group. Um, and uh, we had this one-on-one -on -one peer session and, you know, chatting away and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then Fran says, yes. And of course, method follows intent. And I was like, well, we'll come back. <laughs> Tell me more about that. And, um, and she talked about the power of intention. And for me at the time, um, I mean, I'm a big advocate of design thinking. I love it. I, I attempted to be a designer um, and I'm not, and I'm very happy to say I'm not. So I'm somebody who has a great appreciation for design and can do a certain amount of it, but I'd rather call you Matt, to be honest. Um, but that word intention, now that's all sorts of different because why am I doing this? And um, so what I've tended to do now is when I find somebody is, first of all, find if they're up for a chat. And if they are, I'll tend to discover or my, my, my observation would be typically that what's causing the most fear is usually a method or a process. Um, so I'll sort of let them get that out and then sort of say, and what's your intent? What would you love to see? come together and sort of begin if i'm familiar enough with the situation begin to drop in where we've seen other things succeed and who's been around that and how we can bring it in and, and just move the conversation off the process a little bit um and that's so yeah the you have you have my my mind is spinning so i, I want to dig in a little bit more too on that uh 
both what Fran said a little bit more, uh, and then, but the the process. What do you think it is about the process that is is uh, having some negative impacts on folks? And and sorry, and and so again, just put my cards on the table because where I come when I get stuck, I go back to the process. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's it's almost like uh, you know I hear with writer friends and musician friends is the rules are there to be broken. But when you're stuck, the rules get you through because there's a structure to writing, there's a structure to music. And if you feel stuck, and so for me, I'm a, I'm a, I, I do like process as guidelines. Uh, you'll get me all worked up if, if, if it's a procedure discussion, right? I don't like procedures, <laughs> but I do like process. So, but for me, this is interesting is uh, what is it about process? Because who knows how many people I've been unintentionally <laughs> irritating because I, I'm, kind of pro process well so the, i love that question because it's because we now get to it's the complexity of it right? yeah so i think uh first of all uh, I, i'm this is one of these moments matt where we might disagree and that's cool because we'll learn right so <laughs> yeah. for me actually this i'm with you on structure yeah um, there has to be structure and it has to be disciplined um but sometimes we mix structure up with process um, and process can actually get in the way. Now, if, if, if the process, if we're in flow with the process, fantastic, but we have to keep our eyes open. And I'll give you an example. I, I did a, a wonderful project um, a couple of years back with a client and uh, we were flying at it and we were creating a customer engagement experience. And in the middle of it all, the client decided that it would be really cool if she could say that this was an agile process. And I, at the time, didn't know a whole lot about Agile. And um, I got to meet my first sort of scrum master and discovered that the process came right down. And suddenly we were like, well, you didn't follow the process here and you didn't follow the process there. And it just, it untangled the whole thing. And, and I, I remember one particular going into a meeting and just saying, I'm, 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 thank you for this opportunity. It's been fun, but I'm going away to do something else now. And, uh, and um, there was like, well, why? Why are you doing this? And I said, because I, I can't equate the journey we've been on and the logic we've been following with this agile process as it's being prescribed right now. And I said, I, it's not that I don't want to spend the energy to do it. It's actually, it's causing me to doubt my ability to do it. And I know that we were on track and getting good results. And, and now this process is forcing me off that. So it's probably better that I, I go. I well, I appreciate that wisdom on your on your part too. Is in uh, honestly with 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 agile that I, I thank you because that's a great example. Because uh, when I do when I see where I get frustrated too is when people don't seem to be in agreement or understand the intent that was behind that process. Right, and uh, so many times I've been in places struggling with agile, wanting to claim to be agile, and it feels like they're missing like the heart of the, and, and this is where I, I can just be a, a, a dick to people is because when I'm interested, I go to like original source material and look at what was the intent. And so, like, yeah, I remember when I got introduced to agile, the first thing I did was read the agile manifesto. So. Right. And I'm like, Oh, this is making so much sense. Uh, right. People, people over, over paperwork and really understand what the customer needs. And yet most of, most of the way it, it, uh, manifests itself in organizations is many waterfalls an addiction to speed. Uh, and for, for me, what I was, it felt like a, just another way <laughs> for people to say no, yeah. uh, because it won't fit into these boxes. 
And that part was incredibly frustrating for me, but I, for me, it also felt like it was violated. Like I love the notion of daily standups, quick check-ins, a lot of the agile, and, and, and maybe that's why both of us get along so well on the strategic doing front too. There is a discipline there and, and there's just enough guardrails to keep things going. But yeah, I, so thank you. I really do appreciate you using the agile example because that, that one gets me stirred up pretty and, easily. And I love it. And by the way, you know, um, to your audience, I, I like, as I'm going to say this now, right. So just to throw them all out there and, and have people <laughs> kind of curse me, um, can we add OKRs to that mix? And <laughs> there was one that came across yesterday. Yes. Uh, stage gates for innovation. Um, I would like to add that to the mix as well, please. I look that works for certain people. It's like the concept of, you know, safe, right. The scalable agile framework. Um, that to me is complete and utter contradiction in terms. And if, I'm, if, if that's just the way I see it, I apologize. Um, but no, uh, say I'm, I'm with you. I, I know I was having a conversation with, uh, Ann Peretti. Uh, so he was former chief innovation officer at Transamerica and, um, yeah, he's, he's been gracious with sharing like his journey and what went well and what hasn't. And, uh, but you know, we were talking about, uh, a, a yet another organization and it was, uh, we were talking about risk aversion and, and a company claiming that we're not risk averse. And they're, they're, they're leaning on safe. As that, I mean, it's like, it's in your, you, right? you're afraid of innovation and to your, to your OKRs and stage gate. That's one of my frustrations with going back to effectual innovation is it's people want, they want the results of innovation. Mm-hmm. But they're they're not willing to basically plant the seeds and cultivate. But yeah, to me, it it it's it's whether you want to use a mindset, whether you want to use uh, maybe like physical fitness. It's not these aren't one and done. And it's like gardening. There's certain things you have to do at certain times. Is prep the soil, plant, <laughs> keep an eye on it, uh, but also know that it's going to go where it's going to go. <laughs> and it just I find it really interesting when people want to treat. Uh, innovation like a Six Sigma program. Yeah, I, I love this. This is triggering something for me very strongly, which I, I hope will resonate from an Iowa yeah. perspective. Um, somebody I talked to recently in an incredibly innovative uh, consulting company, and they're based out of Lincoln, Nebraska. And they're one of the sharpest companies I've ever come across. And um, uh, th- we had a great conversation about what we call rural wisdom. Um, and I wanted to tell a story here that I think will resonate because in Iowa, you've got, you know, an awful lot of high risk industries, like especially around insurance and, 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 you know, the whole climate and ecology and, and the, the farming industry is obviously yeah. also very, very strong and looking at data all the time. So, and the best data scientist we know, listen, I know Bill Schmarzo, who's from uh, Charles city, right? So that's right. Um, I was working with a data scientist, the chief data scientist, uh, at Hitachi, and we were working at um, what we, I'll, I'll throw it out there. It's called DIPA plus D, and DIPA was the data science acronym for Discover, Explore, Predict, Prescribe, and Automate. And I think yeah. I was going to talk to you about this. And the D piece was let's add design in the mix. And um, and um, as we went and looked at what it would take to actually get to autonomous, uh, they were looking at trying to be in the ninety percentile 
you know, hit rate. And, and they were struggling with this and having deep, long sort of ethical conversations about it's not enough. It's not enough. And, and it just occurred to me one day because I had done some work with a company here in the Bay Area called Risk Management Solutions. And they are basically, if you have an earthquake, first call is probably to Risk Management Solutions to figure out what can we do about it um, from an insurance standpoint. And, um, and they had said typically that 80% is about as much as you can hope for. And so I went into the, the data science team and I said, guys, you're, you know, killing yourselves here over this 90th percentile. The insurance industry is probably in around 80. And they were like, that you could see the weight go off them. And, and so to your point, and this is what I, I want to tie it back to the, the rural wisdom is there's, it's not, I'm, I'm not saying I am, I have that wisdom, but it was, it's just knowing that, look, we can't get to 90% certainty on anything. Um, so take that load off. Talk to people who can give you a different perspective and let's, again, you can see I'm trying to think this through as I talk, but let's get the wins we can get and the things that don't work, they're all learning. Um, does right, that make, right. make sense? It does. It does. And I love that. You know, one is like, uh, well, that's one of the things I, I argue for also with, with Spark is what's the smallest experiment we can run? doesn't mean that it really is tiny, right? But what's the smallest thing we can run so that we can get going and learn? And uh, while most, most of my career has been spent probably more on the qualitative research side, uh, but I did a lot of work in data analytics and dashboards for big companies. But my first uh, job out of grad school, I was actually a market research analyst and I did more, probably did more quantitative than I did qualitative. But I still remember back from statistics classes and what we're doing in polling, the difference between 90% confidence level and 95% confidence level is almost nil in the real life, <laughs> but it's, it's a lot more expensive. It's a lot, right? It's the energy and money to get from 90% confidence to 95% confidence on kind of a statistical curve is it's obscene what you need to do. So to like 90%, 80%, that's good. Especially where, when we're not dealing with uh, life or death, surgical training, you know, it's not that type of precision, especially early in the process. So I, I appreciate you bringing that forward. I, I think the other, I, I love you talking about the statistical thing there, because the other fascinating thing about data science and quantitative, when you, when you point it towards people is that people are not linear in any way. And so the, the typical, uh, I'm trying to think, <laughs> my math is never, yeah is no good, but the, the typical math that you would use to try and, uh, you know, develop insights and make predictions for things doesn't apply when it comes to things that relate to people. Right. Um, right. And, and so you got to give yourself that room. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, John, one of the, one of the things that I, uh, usually cover with guests too, is a notion of advice. Uh, and that comes, uh, that can come from good advice that you've received. Uh, sometimes I know for me, it might've been a wise elder told you something, but you were too young to, like, it didn't make sense or yet might've even mocked it. <laughs> and then you realize that it was a pretty elegant payload that they had delivered to you. <laughs> uh, and, or it could be, you know, along the, the lines of, uh, uh, Austin Cleon in his book, Steal Like an Artist, says when we're given advice, we're just talking to our younger self. So maybe it was advice you wish you would have had. But you know, kind of for, for folks you know, that are confronting 
maybe complexity or want to be more innovative in organizations? You know, is there advice that you have on that front? Uh, I do have something around complexity, which I feel kind of strongly about. And that is, um, for me, complexity isn't difficult. It's just, it's something that's so big that you can't figure it out on your own. You have to get other people's points of view. And so allow yourself to bring in the other perspectives. And along with that is don't try to get to one point of view between you all is accommodate the richness of the different perspectives. Um, because that's what allows us to go on a journey. Right. Um, and so I, I would share that. I, I just a quick thought to you on the advice I was given. I was probably not very good at listening to it in the moment. So when I look back, I'm more inclined to see people in my past sort of emerge with glow around them and go, oh, my God, thank God I, I sort of had that chance with that person because now I tend to operate as much as I can, like I saw them operate. Yeah. Uh, so I hope that makes. Oh, thank you. And uh, j jumping back to Cork for me, uh, tell, give, give me one good Cork phrase that one might uh, get in, in either saying goodbye or raising a glass. What's a, what's a good Cork uh, kind of greeting, well, salutation? I, if I was if I was in Ireland, this would probably get a little bit of a health warning. But here in the U.S., you guys won't pick up on this too much. But uh, uh, when you're heading out the door and you've finished your pint, I will say to you, "Go on, you langer." <laughs> so you can do your research on that one. <laughs> I will. I will. Uh, well, John, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. It's it's always a pleasure to to talk with you. And uh, I think every time that we have a conversation, I feel like I learned so much. So I, I do appreciate you sharing oh, your wisdom. Matt, thank you so much. It's, it's, um, it's a real pleasure always to chat with you. So I appreciate it. And uh, thank you to everybody who's, who may listen in. I appreciate it.